Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. This week we have Aaron Gibbs Van Brunshot as the co-host of the week to hang out with me. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm good, Steve. How about you? Pretty good. Has spring finally come to Calgary? It has basically come. We had a really hot week last week and now it's cooled off significantly and things are actually looking a bit green, so it's good. Excellent. How well, about for you? It, uh, yes, it has. We finally, when I, I left for a trip and when I came back, it was much warmer and things are growing. So it looks like we're finally Excellent. into it. Although Facebook reminds me that in past years, it snowed on the state. So we'll see. I know it's never over till it's over. And we, we really consider summer not to start in Calgary until stampede time, which is July, usually about July 6th or 7th. Then it's summer. Well, I used to market by the beginning of ultimate Frisbee season, but I am <laughs> no longer playing ultimate. So I guess I'll have to be... When do I first have my bike ride that has a ice cream break in the middle of it? So exactly. that hasn't happened yet. Hmm. Well, this week we have a variety of uh, security issues to discuss. First one is close to home, which is we saw a story about how surprisingly British Columbia kind of leads the country in the use of force by police officers. Since hmm. you study policing, we thought we'd ask you what you thought of this. What, 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 what's going on here? And is this all that remarkable? Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about this. This is a very interesting story. Interesting uh, research that has produced this from that Tracking Injustice Project. They were the ones that I think had the press release about this. So the interesting thing for me is that actually when you look at the data, there isn't that huge difference between BC and Alberta, unfortunately. BC, Alberta, and Manitoba kind of lead the way in terms of police killings, I guess, is the way to put it, police deaths or police involved deaths. I think one of the interesting findings though about BC was that they had a different source of death in terms of what it was that the police officers did. So the uh, the officers, typically if you die in the at the hands of the police, it would be through shootings, but in BC it's due to restraints. And it appears that BC differs significantly in terms of the number of people who have died during restraints, I guess. So just looking at a couple of issues that might be applicable there, one of the, maybe this is due to sort of the limited knowledge that I have of Vancouver and drug problems, but there is, certainly there is factors that come into play in terms of the likelihood of death, given the condition of the individuals who are put in various restraints. Mm -hmm. 
So it's important to look at the state of the detainee and that sort of thing. And, and if a person is in medical distress and you put them in a, in a restraint, obviously it's going to have a, a different impact than when somebody is not maybe drug-induced state. I think so. So there's interesting things about the condition and the nature of the restraint itself. But I think this, of course, doesn't speak to the larger issue about why police are, are doing this in the first place, which is, I think you could make a case that these are systemic sorts of issues that the police are participating in and that there's definitely a lot more calls for service against individuals who may be non-white. And mm -hmm. there's sort of a, a history of discrimination that also has gone along with policing. So there's a number of things that are at play here. Here, whether it's the sort of the nature of the individuals being held, the larger systemic issues, but there's, yeah, there's lots to talk about here. I guess the question then is, is why can't they restrain people without killing them? I mean, that's, a, I guess, a naive question, but it's one thing that we're, you know, in the United States particularly, but elsewhere in Canada, we've seen a lot of police shooting first before perhaps the threat becomes really requiring that kind of response. But is it that the BC police are poorly trained? Is it that the people in, in BC are more hopped up on drugs, so that way there's more violent encounters that cause them to use more violent restraints that lead to more, you know greater deaths. So any any hint as to why this effort to restrain people is killing people at such a high rate? I think there could be that all of the above actually probably does have something to do with it. One of the things, though, that I think we could be, you know, it's kind of relates to the defund the police movement and the nature of the population or the you know, the characteristics of the population really do, they do make a difference. But if you are uh, dealing with somebody who's having a drug induced, you know, situation or paranoia or something like that, or they're in any sort of medical distress, the philosophy should be that you should treat that as a medical incident first and not as a criminal incident. And I think a little bit of it that I was reading, there's a much different approach to this, it appears in the UK versus North America with respect to the need and requirement for putting people in a prone position. Mm -hmm. It seems as though in North America, that's kind of a standard practice, whereas it's not a standard practice and not recommended in a lot of the European countries, but UK in, in particular. So I think there is a, a lot to be said about the training issue, but also just the ways in which the police frame emergencies. It's not, not every emergency where you see somebody who's experiencing some drug-induced issues is a crime and, and should be framed as a criminal situation, it really would make more sense in many of these situations to frame this as a situation of medical distress and treat it that way. So I think that we have some framing issues, but also some training issues with respect to how we approach people who may be uh, suffering some kind of issue that requires at least some kind of holding down. But if you frame that, I think, as medical versus criminal, you you treat them in a much different way. Okay, so part of it is is that we need to think a little bit more about when the police are called in as opposed to other actors. Has there been any momentum to actually do that out West? Or is that something we see discussed, but there's not really anything happening with that? I think it's it's probably uneven across police agencies. I know here in Calgary they they do have teams that that go out on calls and you know a team might approach a situation a bit differently than obviously one single individual police officer might. But I think we also need to retrain the public as well and think of systems that the public could contribute to because we have like um, a 911 system across most of the country, I think. And everything sort of gets, people aren't necessarily sure of what they're seeing. So they might be framing it to the uh, 
the, the call center as though it is a criminal event when it's not. So there could be a public education campaign that that might speak to either the symptoms or the characteristics of somebody undergoing a drug-induced phenomenon. So I think we could do better public education so that they would know what they're seeing. But also I think it, this sort of team approach that it's difficult when you receive a call sometimes at, at those call centers to know exactly what is being dealt with. So if there's the resources to send teams out to these difficult situations, it would make a lot of sense too. But of course, there's a resourcing issue, which is always the problem about sending teams. Well, I guess part of the question is, if the problem is that people are calling 911, and then one is actually then acting and calling the cops, can't we train the 911 operators to, to be able to sift through what people are reporting them and send other people besides the cops? I think they are actually, most call centers do employ very well-trained people and they ask as many questions as they can to get, to get a full picture and then to ensure that the right services are sent at that point. Despite probing for more information, they might not get the full information depending on the nature of the emergency or the sort of the, uh, you know, it could be somebody just sort of a bystander who may not know the full details of the situation and that kind of thing. But I, I do think they are highly trained. It does seem that there's a real problem here because while there will be confrontations between police and people, and sometimes there'll be violence, it does not seem to be the case that there should be so many people dying in, in British Columbia due to these strategies to restrain. So it sounds like we should call the cops out less rather than other people. And when we do call up the cops, they should probably think about other other strategies, other tactics that, that they need different trainings. That way they don't use these tendencies. I remember there was a few years ago discussion about chokeholds and which kind of chokeholds people should not yeah. use because they were deadly. Yeah, I think that one of the things that they, and they certainly do avoid it in the UK, is this the use of the prone position and the idea that you should be restraining individuals for as brief a time as possible. If there's prolonged struggling by the individual, it, it makes more sense to just let them go because they're probably not going too far in any case anyway. And that there there's clear suggestions that you should always be avoiding when you're restraining individuals to avoid compressing the body for, for really any period of time. So one would hope that there would be other ways of restraining individuals besides the uh, the prone position, which I think is the thing that really has to change in this situation mm -hmm. is just completely avoiding prone restraints. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Well, we've got some good news. Uh, COVID is apparently over. How do you feel about the WHO declaring the emergency over given that people are still dying from this disease? Well, I think they're probably just declaring it over, given that there are fewer people being infected. They obviously, uh, the death rate has declined in some, well, to a large extent. I think it's interesting that, that they have declared it over because I think we do, when something is called an emergency, we still take note of it in a much different way than we would if it's now a non-emergency. So I'll be very curious to see how this does impact the infection rates going forward, because people will think that they don't have to take the, pre the precautions that they were previously taking. So I think if I have to say that I have been relatively personally unscathed by COVID, I did not know anybody who suffered extreme consequences from it. But I, I think I would feel probably differently about this declaration of a non-emergency than I, than I would have had I been personally impacted. What I think is interesting, though, about this is the, the emergency aspect might be over, but it really isn't over in terms of some of the social consequences that, that we have endured and continue to endure from COVID. So perhaps some of the, the emergency stuff obviously is over with, but the consequences will remain, I think, for a long time. What do you think about it? 
I, I'm not sure it makes sense to me. I don't think this is over. We keep on getting waves of new variants. We still don't know how many people are suffering from long COVID. We don't know how long how long long COVID lasts. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot we don't know about this, and it may not be as deadly as it once once was. But I I found it profoundly distressing that after everybody got two shots, Canada sort of shrugged its shoulders and gave up. Mm-hmm. I think there should be a concerted campaign to get people a third and fourth and fifth shots. I think that we didn't really do a good job of getting kids shots that we sort of that was kind of late after we've lost our enthusiasm for vaccinations. And I worry that with a WHO declaring emergency over, it will feed complacency that people who need relief because they're sick or taking care of someone someone's sick will not get the relief they need from their employer because their employer will say, well, it's no longer an emergency, so it's no longer our problem. I think mm-hmm. I think declaring emergency over gives permission to people like Doug Ford and his ilk, you know, cutting money being spent on health so that way you can declare tax cuts, and balance budgets, while there's still plenty of pe- people who need health care, that the hospitals are still stressed out by this. I don't think the hospitals are empty. I don't think they, they, I don't think they've gone through a period where they've been able to catch their breath after, you know, several years of, of high intensity medical care. So I guess I understand that the rate of transmission is lower, that there are fewer people who are getting it that we know of, but you know, part of this statistic is we don't really know because we've given up on testing. So we don't really know how much COVID there is out there. All we'll know is at the end of the month or end of the year, we can take a look at what, how many people should have died and mm-hmm. how many excess deaths we have. And then we go, well, turns out COVID killed a lot of people this year, but we didn't count it as such because they didn't test for it more. We found out after the fact or whatever. So I worry about complacency and I, I think it's a wee bit early for this, but then I'm not a doctor. I, well, I'm not that kind of doctor anyway, and I'm not an epidemiologist. I just think this is going to encourage all kinds of bad behavior that we gave up way too soon on this. And as a result, people are going to die or people are going to have long-term severe health outcomes, but we wanted to get past this. So we declared it over, even though it may not be over. Certainly people are still getting sick from it. I, I've seen people report getting COVID last week for the first time. Mm-hmm. One of the things that was disturbing to me as I was at this conference Friday and Saturday, on Saturday afternoon, the guy behind me was hacking and coughing the whole time. And you would think at this point after the past three years, if you're making a lot of noise at a conference because you can't breathe... You get the hell out of the room. And this guy would not leave. And so I ended up moving away from him because I didn't want to have my, the back of my neck covered in potential COVID germs, COVID germs, whatever else he was spewing. The, the sad thing is, is that we really haven't learned that much and we haven't really changed that, our behavior that much. In traveling the last couple of days, I was one of the very few people in the airports wearing a mask. I was one of the very few people on the plane wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a guy near me on the plane who was coughing and he was, you know, catching his cough with his hands rather than trying to catch it with your shoulder like you're supposed to do these days or upper arm. Mm-hmm. It just we just haven't learned the, any lessons from this. And I mean, I, you know, some individuals have. I behave a little bit differently, but man, yeah, I I agree with all those things. I I don't know. It's like when to stalling something in emergency. It, it can still be a problem, and I I hope that it doesn't mean that people will back off on all of those precautions they've been taking. But it, you know, I don't know if there's burnout from calling something, or you know, that we create a certain degree of burnout by calling something in emergency for three years. I don't know. But I, I, I would hope that people who have been cautious and will continue to do so. But it's, you know, I think part of the the challenge to continue to call it an emergency is that there's such different contexts have such different expectations. Like you're saying at the airport, you know, some, or some airports, you see everybody masked up. Some locations, they still mask and others, they don't. But it was sort of like this the entire time, I guess, through COVID as well. So 
I don't, I don't know what the right approach is. I hope that people don't fall off the precautionary wagon and start to treat it as though it's not a serious issue. I think the long COVID stuff is really, that story is yet to be told in terms of how individuals who have been impacted fare going forward. Yeah. I, as I said, I'm very frustrated. It is. Uh, and I do think this will send signals to the politicians anyway, that they can move on. And but we've had some politicians who have been quite willing to move on, even in the heart of the pandemic. Yeah, we have had a number of pandemics over the last number of decades, though. And there, it does seem as though every new pandemic is sort of approached as though this is the first time this has ever happened. So I don't know that we actually do learn that much from from previous iterations of of this kind of thing. So it will be interesting to know what happens next and how we respond if we respond effectively the next time something, or if, if this happens to also uh, increase again, or if there's just a new new thing to to worry about. I'm pretty convinced that we are not going to respond well the next time. I think that a lot of the tools we use this time are not going to be available next time, that, that you're going to have politicians are going to be very reluctant to lock things down the next time. They got burned by this experience that they 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 don't they won't want to engage in significant political costs and that pandemic will be will spread further and faster because the politicians will be too reluctant to confront the hard choices that have to be made. Yeah, it would be interesting to know if this you know I'm sure that every pandemic has its degree of political polarization, but I think this in some ways seems unique to this particular pandemic. So it's a good question as to whether uh, politicians will be able to rise above that the next time this happens. I I don't feel a lot of hope with that, actually. Yeah. Well, if we want to, weren't depressed enough, we could talk about Sudan. Uh, we could. This civil war has been going on for a few weeks now. We talked about it last in the last episode. The key dynamic is that it was a coup that failed because usually when coups happen, the, the various factions within the military sort of all jump on the one side because they don't want to fight. Mm -hmm. But because... In this case, you have two different military units, one sort of the regular army and this other this paramilitary group. They were a little bit less inclined to worry about cohesion and a little bit more worried about who gets to win. And so both sides seem to have dug in their heels and they're causing a lot of casualties far and wide as a result. There does not seem to be any lasting ceasefire. Mm -hmm. And this, so the story of the week is really what stress this is causing for the neighborhood. One of the classic challenges of any crisis is that the, usually the countries nearby that receive the most refugees are not the best ones for receiving refugees. They're usually countries that have their own problems. They tend to be poorer. They tend to have their own political stability. They tend not to have the resources. You know, Ukrainians were lucky in that they were able to flee to countries that were able to take care of them. Mm -hmm. um, actually, the Syrians fled to countries that could take care of them to a certain degree. And then those countries chose not to. But in this case, Sudan's neighbors are are paying a high price for hosting, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are trying to escape the violence. Yeah. One question that I have about this, Steve, maybe you know, is has this been framed as kind of an internal matter? to Sudan or have they asked for external help from neighboring, you know, obviously if their people are leaving across the border, that's not really a request for help. But I was curious about how the the two forces here are, are they sort of suggesting or framing this as though it's their issue and I don't want interference from some of these other allies? Well, I think, I think that uh, there are some actors such as the Egyptians who are supporting one side of this. Mm -hmm. Um, so that I think there are some some of the 
neighbors nearby are abetting one side or the other. But I don't think the actors themselves are defining this as an international problem. They're too busy shooting at each other. I haven't really seen much diplomacy. Like when you have a secessionist movement or an ideologically motivated revolution or rebellion, usually those people are trying to appeal to outsiders for external support and they do a fair amount of public relations, but to do so. And I found that to be the case in a lot of the work, my earlier work long ago, but I just haven't really seen that, but maybe it's, they, maybe they're doing it. It's just not getting coverage, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not like either side of this has an ideology right. uh, or an ethnicity that is appealing not like one is is Muslim and one is not Muslim. It's not like one side is is one ethnic group and one is another. I don't think those things are really as much in play. It's really two factions of the same population, as far as I can tell. Now I could be wrong on that, mm-hmm. but as far as I can tell, the actors who are outside who are getting involved are neighbors who are who, who have a preference about which side wins. But it's not based on ideology, right. not based on shared ethnic identities, not based on the usual stuff. I think it's just opportunity. The real challenge is for the countries nearby Sudan, whether that's Ethiopia, Egypt, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember my geography, Chad, who are all nearby, who uh, have to worry about hundreds of thousands of people coming across the border. South Sudan, which is an independent country for the past several years, is not well set up to take up lots of uh, refugees. No. And Ethiopia has been going through its own wars it's had with its own population. So it's not well suited to receive refugees. So I'm sure the UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, and maybe also UNICEF, are involved in trying to get people some assistance, set up refugee camps, food, water, sanitation, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But I just don't know. Yeah. My question, I guess, right now is... This, as I understand it, in 2019, it was when um, that was the ousting of El Bashir, but that was sort of uh, characterized by a number of civilian protests at that point. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering how, what the role is of civilians at this particular point. I guess they're the ones that are fleeing to get out of the way of this conflict. But is there a specific role for civilians right now, or are they kind of laying low and trying not to be killed? I think that's it, is that, that there, until the two sides have some desire to negotiate or one side gets the upper hand, civilians are hostages, civilians are bystanders, civilians are, are getting hit by this. So I don't think they have much in the way of the ability to control outcomes. I mean, in past coup attempts, you've seen the civilian side with one side or the other where their bodies in the streets mm-hmm. limit the violence because people don't want to fire on the civilians because that would reduce legitimacy, cause a change in how the international community looks at them. Yeah. Uh, too late for that here. The violence is already underway. And so I don't think you have a protest march, you know, through the streets of Khartoum that would, you know, cause anybody to stop shooting. I, I think there's reached a level of violence that that civilians really can't do much. Mm-hmm. So the Canadians have stopped flying people out because it's become too dangerous that they still have ships in the region, but we don't really have a lot of tools at the disposal of the Canadian government to influence outcomes. We're just no. working with our allies to help get as many people out as we can, but there's not much more we can do. No, it, it does seem that it's it's a bit of a difficult situation, especially when there's sort of uh, drivers out of that country and then the receiving, like the same issues are not exactly the same issues, but the problems in one country as a receiving country of the individuals who've been displaced, the, the situations are often not much better than the, the situation from which they have left. So that's not going to be easy for any country in that region right now. Yeah, no, I think the whole place is going to be under stress. And so that's just the way it's going to be. How much we yeah. can do about it. Sorry, some, you know, I I wish we could do more to fix this or make a difference. But I just, I lack the imagination. 
and I'm kind of realistic about the limits of our ability to do stuff here. Yeah, there. one of the things that I was reading about with regard to this situation is that a comment had been made that it's time to have um, for an internal solution rather than having outside solutions. Don't exactly, I think they meant internal to Africa and mm-hmm. the nations that are, are in the immediate area. But I, again, that's that's an easy enough thing to say, but I don't know what exactly that solution would be. I know the external solutions that we like to come up with, or somebody will come in and establish order, I guess. But I don't, I don't know how that works to, or what that what is really meant by the internal solution. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what I was referring to. Now, there, the African Union could send troops to try to quell the violence, but that would be difficult. Uh, yeah, and I, I think at some point one of the sides or both the sides have to come to a, a sense that, that the violence isn't getting them anywhere, but that requires a, a, what they call the business side, mutually hurting stalemate. That is that both sides are getting hurt and it's a stalemate that neither side sees that it's going to get the upper hand. As long as one side or the other thinks that they can win, they're not going to stop fighting. No. Well, I'm sorry, Aaron, to bring you on a thoroughly depressing episode of the podcast. Yeah, the, well, it's kind of, wasn't it? Yeah, well, that happens sometimes. The good news is we have the future of Canadian Defense and Security Studies is in good shape. We have Pauline Peak uh, is our feature interview that one of our colleagues, uh, I believe it was Anessa, who interviewed her. So she'll be coming on next to talk about Arctic security uh, and some other related issues. So hopefully they'll be able to conclude the episode with with a little bit more optimism than what we currently have. But okay. I guess if the emergency over COVID is over, then things are better. Well, let's hope. Let's hope. All right. Well, I hope is not asking. a yeah. Hope is not a plan, as they say, but it's what we got. So yes. uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, enjoy your summer. Hopefully, it won't snow too many more times. Yeah. Thank you so much, Steve. I hope you have a great summer too, despite not playing frisbee golf. Not frisbee golf. It's ultimate frisbee. Those are two different things oh. entirely. Oh my my mistake. Yes, I knew it had something to do with the outdoors, <laughs> but and frisbees. But one involves running. One does not involve running. And oh. It is, the running and mostly the changing of directions, covering people and trying to evade people that causes my legs to fall apart at my age. So maybe it will be Frisbee golf this summer. I could, but that's that's just not interested. But I'll be biking. Anyway, enjoy the mountains. Thanks so much, Steve. All right, take care. Hello, listeners. This is Professor Kimball from University Laval, and welcome to another interview segment of Battle Rhythm. I am extremely pleased to have with us uh, Dr. Pauline Pick, who received her doctorate from University Laval, and I'm going to let her introduce herself, talk a little bit about her academic training and her dissertation project. Hi, so I'm Pauline, Pauline uh, Pic. Uh, I'm very happy to, to be here. My, I graduated from my PhD uh, from Université Laval in 2022. And before that, uh, I did a bachelor's degree uh, back in France uh, in history. And then I did an exchange year in uh, JNU, so in Jawaharlal Nehru University in, uh, in New Delhi, in India, where I transitioned from uh, history to, to geography. And then I did my master's degree in Paris uh, in geography, uh, which led me to take a competitive exam uh, in geography to be, to be a teacher. And then I was a teacher uh, for a while in, in France, in high school, 
And this is how, when I decided to go for a PhD. And this is how I ended up working on the Arctic with uh, Frédéric Lasserre and Stéphane Roussel, who co-supervised my, my PhD uh, in the Department of Geography uh, at Université Laval. And now I'm doing a postdoc still at Université Laval, but in uh, the Department of Political Science. And I work with Jean-Frédéric Morin. Uh, and I work on governance processes in the in the global commons, uh, so uh, deep sea, the high seas, and and outer space. Excellent. That sounds very interesting. And so we have invited you today to talk to us about an exciting new area that NATO has has more and more entered into in the last several years. And so this is the broad area of climate change and security. You know. Although climate change is a global issue and has transnational effects, can you tell me a little bit about your perspectives on climate change and why it's a security issue in Canada particularly? So I did my PhD on the Arctic and on the scales of security in the Arctic. And this is how I came to be interested in, in climate security, because I was working on the scales of security and so how different actors define a given space and how they frame it to then after decide what kind of policies they are going to apply to this to this space. And so in the Arctic, obviously, this idea of scale was very interesting because as you said, climate change and global changes are uh, coming from a global perspective. And what we say is that what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. And the other side of, of this coin is, is true as well. And so this is how I kind of came interested in from this very interesting perspective about uh, security and climate security, because global issues also have local impact. And so when we think about uh, in the Arctic and in Canada uh, in particular, when we think about climate security, obviously we can think about environmental security. And so the changes that we can already see from the heat, uh, heat uh, domes that we have in the summer, the floods that we have uh, in the beginning of the spring and these kinds of issues. And if we think much more north uh, in the, and in the Arctic, we can think about the melting permafrost, uh, the changes in the bottoms of sea ice and that kind of, of issue. And so that would be one first element of what is changing uh, related to climate security in, in Canada. But then this has uh, consequences for human security, and this is a second aspect of things that is very important to consider, especially in Canada, if we think about northern Canada, because indigenous groups are obviously uh, the most impacted by, by these environmental changes. And so when we think about climate security and how it affects Canada, mainly uh, now we see the consequences up north in the Arctic. And obviously, this also has consequences for uh, defense and security in general in the Arctic and outside the Arctic. And so one of the concerns of climate change that you, you brought up essentially is this idea that, you know, there's uncertainties with climate change and it's really going to, it has this potential to reshape the geography of Canada in the north. And I, I like how you talked a little bit on some of those effects on the people that live there. But can you talk a little bit about some of the risks that would be associated with this kind of changing geography? What type of, you know, trade risks? What type of environmental risks? And so, what, you know, what does that mean for, you know, the normal Canadian, one might say? 
Yeah, I I would think that we could we could look at this from from different perspective. In terms of actual risk, I think one of the main one would be the unpredictability. Uh, unpredictability. When we think about security, we want something predictable, and we want to know what kind of answer we we are going to be able to bring to bring back security. But with, with climate change, one of the main thing is that patterns and climate patterns are becoming more and more unpredictable, and I would think that it. In itself, this is already something that is very important to consider, and it's uh, very hard to tackle when we are a policymaker or, or a policy advisor. And I would think that that is one thing of the climate security aspects that is very important to consider. And then in terms of practical aspects of change, if we think about people in the north, we have to consider changing sea ice patterns because this is this is directly related to, to food security issues because hunting is going to be uh, problematic. The migrating species are not going to be the same. And so uh, the culturally available food is probably not going to be the same as it was before. And that kind of element is going to be is going to be problematic. And it's not just going to be like climate change is not just happening in the north. It's amplified in the north, but it's also happening in the south. And we already had some very uh, good examples recently. We can think about the heat dome that was over British Columbia a few a few years back. We can think about the floods that are regularly coming on the east eastern side of, of Canada. It, it can impact infrastructure. And so your day-to-day -day activities can be impacted by these kind of changes because infrastructures who are supposed to help you go by your day-to-day -day activity may be impacted by the changes and then it's a problem for the entire functioning of the of the economy and of the society and this is the kind that I, of things that I would be looking at if I had to think about the geography that is changing in because of climate change in Canada. Exactly and I think that this is important because you know we think about kind of these large end impacts, but there are very kind of functional pragmatic impacts that would occur in terms of, for example, rising sea levels would change all of our harbors and ports. And so mm -hmm. how do you do very functional things? Like you said, disaster management relief, which is something that we, you know, task our Canadian forces with more and more. So how would you do that if you don't actually have ports? Yeah. And some of these things are, uh, you know, a bit creative and outside of things that we normally reflect about. But like you say, that's part of the, the un predictability. And I think that that's an important thing to underline, that we create these institutions to kind of create stable relations, predictability, and a security of what's going on. And what we're seeing with climate change is that, you know, it's wreaking havoc with those institutions in some ways. Um, and now we're, we're, we're forced into very much as a reactive or a mitigation context. And I think that that's a challenge for states. And so one of the things that, uh, so Pauline and I, um, we've known each other for a couple of years, but we recently met in Montreal when the um, climate security and NATO theme of the Canadian Defense and Security Network hosted our first conference, which is linked with the establishment of a NATO Center of Excellence on Climate Change and Security, which will be hosted in Montreal. And so for the audience that doesn't really know that much about Centers of Excellence, what they are, uh, we've probably heard of a couple of them. The most well-known ones are, for example, STRATCOM or Strategic Communications or Cyber Defense. These are 
kind of the two jewels in the natal crown of centers of excellence. And the center of excellence coming to Canada is interesting for a couple of reasons from the viewpoint of myself as a scholar. This is the 30th center, though Canada is only a member of five of them. And so it gives a little bit of an interesting contrast of that it's hosting one, but it might not have the most experience. These centers are also outside of the NATO structure, command structure functionally and in terms of financing. And so as myself, somebody who's interested in defense of economics and burden sharing, these offer um, interesting ways, different ways to slice club burdens. And these centers of excellence are what one would consider NATO's forward-looking way to adapt to the future. So if we had to talk about kind of future uncertainties, these are the mechanisms through which NATO is trying to collaborate, coordinate, and reduce issues uh, associated with very specific mandates. And so what is interesting historically is that these centers emerged around very kind of classic areas of defense and security collaboration. For example, Joint Air Command and Control was one of the first ones that came out. Um, and then we kind of saw this second wave of centers that emerged very much with STRATCOM and CyberDef. You know, this kind of, we have these multiplication of threats that are not very classically in that silo of security and defense. And what I think is interesting about this next center on climate change is that it kind of takes that net and it casts it even wider beyond, you know, what we might have thought about previously because climate change and security is one of those policy areas and problems where it's kind of all hands on deck, one might say. And so we had invited Pauline to the conference to, to participate because NATO has identified a number of areas in which that they kind of target in terms of what the institution needs to do to advance, you know, its climate security agenda and its action plan. And so one of these areas is outreach. And so I would ask Pauline, which Arctic stakeholders are really crucial to collaborate with in order to get this agenda rolling, one might say. Yeah, I think it was really interesting to look at the action plan that was set out by NATO to, to tackle climate change and how they thought about this, because I think there were some very classical ideas like, you know, adapt defense and uh, military and defense activity, mitigation of direct emissions and that kind of stuff that was kind of what you expect from, from such a center of excellence. But I think this, this point about outreach and cooperation with partners was really interesting, especially if you, if you think about the Arctic. And I know that we discussed during this conference that this center of excellence was, would not focus exclusively on the Arctic, would be more generally about climate change. However, being located in Canada, I would think that the Arctic would still play an important part in the in the general thinking that is going to come out from this center of excellence. And in that respect, I think that outreach, obviously, if we think about the Arctic outreach towards, yes, the ind indigenous groups, indigenous population, because if we want to think about what is changing and what kind of consequences it will have for day-to-day -day activities, but also how can we reach the, the north in, in case of a crisis and in terms of infrastructures, in terms of what is actually changing. I think it's important to, to speak with people that are on the ground and that are experiences these changes directly in, in their day-to-day -day life. And so I think that would be something that is that is very interesting. And we have to be much more careful about, about the social aspects of, of climate change. And I think this is also something that was discussed during, during the, the conference. And that is something that the, the Center of Excellence wants to tackle. And so I would think that 
more generally, because we saw during COVID how social structures can be impacted by general crisis. And I think also something in terms of outreach beyond talking to, to indigenous group, with, which must be the number one priority, I think talking also to the, to the general population and focus on the clarity of information, you know, a, a good communication and, and transparency, I think those are three elements that, in my opinion, are very important to for the Center of Excellence in particular. I totally agree. I mean, I think one thing that's interesting, if you've followed the, the climate change and security kind of agenda, you know, we had, you know, 20 some years ago, we had Al Gore, who kind of was trying to be this norm entrepreneur very much in, in bringing this forward. But, you know, frankly, he didn't really have the charisma, like we talk about with certain norm mm -hmm. entrepreneurs that, that really kind of brought it. And there was a lot of skepticism, right? And so now we have 20 plus years of data and scientific studies. So, you know, there is a, a consensus on the science behind it in some senses that it's real, that it's happening. But I think on the other hand, one of the things that is a challenge still is the types of data that we would collect to monitor or measure, you know, how we are mitigating climate change. And so as somebody that, you know, has studied geography, understands these things in far more nuance than I do as a political scientist who studies cooperation, you know, what would, what would you be measuring if you wanted to know that we were, you know, making positive change in, in this agenda? Yeah, that, that is a very interesting question. We, we don't often think uh, enough about, about data and what kind of data we need. And I think it's, it's very interesting. And because I'm a human geographer, I would focus obviously on the, on the human side of climate change. I don't know exactly how many, like how, how the, the center of excellence would be able to, to actually collect data and if they are going to have scientists on board, sorry. But I would think that if I could uh, collect data, I would have some people on the ground and, and talking with, with people who live in the Arctic, not only in the Canadian Arctic, but generally anywhere we can in the Arctic, because now some parts of the Arctic are maybe a bit difficult to, to reach. But yeah, I would I would definitely focus on the on the human side of climate change because universities are already doing a very great job and scientists in universities measuring climate change are already very already a lot of hands on deck measuring the, the physical sides of climate change. And I think that's something that might be very interesting for this center of excellence is precisely try to focus on the dialogue and exchange and, and communication really with the scientists and with the people who are collecting the data data and, and exp, uh, analyzing this, this data. And I don't know if it's something that is planned in the in this center of excellence, but I think something that would be very interesting to really be able to tackle climate change and, and what is what it means both in the Arctic and, and elsewhere is so, some sort of a, of a knowledge broker that would be able to read and understand the science and be able to talk to the scientists because he it shares their, their language, it can understand them and be understood by them. But it also would be someone who masters the political language and is able to translate the science for policy uh, analysts and, and advisors. And I think that would be something that would be key for a center, uh, for an efficient center of excellence working on, on climate change, because he, it could allow the center of excellence to actually work with the, the finest and the highest level of, of science.
Mm-hmm. Well, I know that one of the, you know, one of the things that they're looking for is to try to kind of, they're thinking of the center of the center of excellence as a way to kind of centralize these expertises and as a way to figure out, you know, how we would track and how we would really do this data piece. And I like the way that you focused on the human security, you know, aspect, because I think that it also brings the agenda back to those, you know, human security, political issues that are also very important to most Canadians. You know, I think that one of the reasons why the climate security and climate change agenda is something that engages a lot of young Canadians is the fact that human security is something that a lot of young Canadians care about as people that want to, you know, that care about democracy, that care about the rule of order. And so I think that that was very interesting. And I wonder how we're going to try to make that that peace happen. And so as always, you know, this, the CDSN, one of our goals is to try to help people to network. And so this was a conference event where we brought together, you know, stakeholders from the private sector, stakeholders from the military and, of course, academics like yourself. Um, And so what did you appreciate from this conference event generally? Uh, I think it was very interesting because for one thing, it was organized in a really small group. And I just came from ISA, which is this huge conference when there is thousands of people everywhere. And so it's very hard to, to network and to actually meet people because people are here and there and they are always, they have a very busy schedule. And as a postdoc, for me, what is interesting is to actually be able to talk to scientists that I, that I like. And for this conference in particular, it was very easy because it was such a small group and there was some nice break times where we could actually talk together. And so that was that was something that, that was interesting. And because I work a lot on climate security, obviously the academics that were there, I knew about them, I knew about their work, and so I was very happy to be able to introduce myself and and talk to them. And beyond these academics, there was also some very from uh, you know there was uh, some very big names in in climate security, and and especially Sherry Sherry Goodman was there, and it was also very interesting to be able to to talk and 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 listen to what she had to say about about climate security. So that was something that was very very interesting for for me. And so, you know, one of the other things that, uh, you know, I think a lot of our, some of our audience members are interested in is you talked about your path and how you, you came to study geography and now you're, you're, you're into a postdoc right now, which is more on uh, political economy. So, you know, where do you see yourself going now once you finish the postdoc? You know, what are kind of the, the career goals, you know, if you had to, to pilot out your own path here, what do you see as the types of things that you're interested in? Yeah, uh, that is a very good question that I ask myself quite, quite often because I recently read that in Canada, I think it's less than 20% of PhDs that end up uh, have finding a job in academia, uh, which is something that I w- I'm still considering and I would like to find a job in academia. But if I do it, something in, in government and research, and maybe I know that this knowledge broker thing that I talked about earlier exists in some government agencies, and that may be something that would, uh, that would interest me because I would still have a foot in in research and and science, but the other foot would would be something more practical and yeah, more involved in decision making. And maybe that would be something that interests me. And, you know, finally, if there were a couple takeaways that you would say, like, you know, for instance, if you had those decision makers, Justin Trudeau and Melanie Jolie and all of those decision makers, you know, and you had them for a couple minutes, what would be the takeaways that you would say to them if you really wanted to move this agenda along in the next couple of years? What are your, your policy recommendations? Where do you think the money should go? You know, as somebody who has, who has seen this from a very unique perspective. 
yeah, if I could make that decision, I think one of the things that I would do is really focus on the science and listen to the scientists more and really give them the means to actually measure what, what is happening. And so that would be one big focus. Listen to the science and make the science possible. It's already happening. And yes, there is a lot of funding that goes to, to research, but I think that there can never be enough funding going to, to research. So that would be something that would be my number one priority. And the second can priority that I would have would be to uh, listen to the people and to actually engage with them at every level, not just some random consultations here and there. I know it's very complicated to organize. I know it's a lot of logistics involved, but I think that in terms of legitimacy, in terms, uh, which is something that we've discussed a lot as well during the during the conference, I think being able to, to engage with people and being able to involve them uh, in, in the discussion, in the general discussion would be something that is that is uh, important to to make things happen and to really grasp how climate change affects them and their day-to-day -day life so that would be uh, the, the the second point that i that i would focus on and then i would really try to have every of these uh these polls discussed together and to really have a, a dialogue going about how climate change impa uh, impacts uh, the, the country, how climate change impacts Canada, and what kind of, of measures we, we can take and really have this dialogue going so that people are engaged and government are engaged together in trying to improve the, the situation. So, and, and I totally agree with you, you know, stakeholder engagement, public awareness, and the last part, that research part, you know, I think that that's essential. And I wouldn't give up hope yet in terms of finding a position, you know, University of Victoria just unrolled a Bachelor of Science degree in climate science. I think 10 years ago, we had all of these interdisciplinary degrees in international studies. And I think that this is kind of the forefront of where these dis interdisciplinary degrees are going in the future. And I would even say that Part of one of the things that this CASCO should reflect upon is, you know, what would a graduate program look like if you're going to do, you know, green military procurement and green defense? I know probably some people are, you know, having a little bit of a breakdown about those two things together <laughs> in a sentence, but... You know, I think that this is this is part of the future of what defense is, and this may also be part of, you know, how defense can solve some of its recruitment issues, because, again, this is something that engages the younger people. And so I thank you so much for spending time with us. It was wonderful that you were able to give us a whole day in Montreal. And, no, you know, thank you. We are really excited to have invited you along for this little fun that's going to be CASCO. And, you know, um, I look forward to continuing our collaboration. Thank you so much, Pauline. Thank you very much for having me.